to IFU this week, uh, intentionally focus on others. Uh, quite honestly, I think uh, all that we've gone through uh, as a nation and as a world has really driven us more to that because we've had to think about how we can uh, focus on other people even as uh, we personally have had some, some of our own needs. So Ron, thanks for sharing that and I'm looking forward to hearing how uh, God is working in and through others, uh, how we can continue to IFU uh, throughout uh, each and every day. Uh, Ron actually reminded as he was giving his children's message. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 20. And we are looking at the fact that, uh, that God is not fair, uh, but that's a good thing. And we're going to see why as we look at uh, this passage of Scripture this morning. Uh, and as Ron was sharing uh, the children's sermon, I got to thinking about, you know, we as parents do our best. Most parents try to do their best to make things fair for their children. And when he talked about sitting shotgun uh, in a car, uh, I, I thought I was going to be fair with my children and so we had three children uh, and so the way I made it fair uh, for them to who got to sit in shot, shotgun once they were old enough to actually sit in that front seat uh, of course every time you know they would you know I want to get front I want you know they would always argue over that so I came up I devised a system that um, our oldest got to sit in the front seat on days one four seven ten you, you do the math on there second one got to be there two uh, whatever it is two three four five you know they had to do the math in their heads so they had to figure it out. Third one got to sit in three. And the requirement was that they actually had to figure it out. So they had to actually do a little bit of math and figure it out, you know, who got to sit in the, the front seat, if it was their day or not. Well, of course, sometimes they would do the math wrong. And uh, so they'd say, that's not fair. I said, well, you just didn't do the math right. You got to figure out the math properly to do that. And they also picked up very, very quickly that not every month is uh, fits into an even three month. And so the oldest actually got to sit in the front seat on days 31 and 1, back to back. And they, of course, you know, very quickly, the younger two said, that's not fair. I said, she was born first. Sorry, that's just the way it goes. So no matter what you do to try to be fair with your children, it's never going to work. You know, it's a, there's always going to be some, some avenue, some, some twist to it uh, that things just aren't fair. And that's just the world that we live in. But this, this message today, I think this parable hits home to us because we understand this, this concept of fairness. We like things to, to be right, and, and that's how we equate fair. And, and usually, again, as Ron said earlier, usually it's based on what's right for me. What, what works for me is what I think is fair. But we like that. We like that sense of this is the right thing and it's happened in the right way, and so we, we, we struggle with that. Well, we have to recognize that God's not fair, and that's good. It's good that he's not fair in, in our sense of fairness, because he is fair in his sense of fairness. God has a way of turning the world upside down, which actually is right side up. And that's what we're going to see in this passage of Scripture today. So Matthew chapter 20, uh, we're going to start in verse 1, go all the way through verse 16 this morning. We're told this, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give to you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. 
And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Uh, now this parable ties into what Christ, uh, what Matthew has in his gospel about Christ's ministry up to this point, uh, the first and the last. If you go back up to chapter 19, you see that uh, as a concluding part of that whole section of his gospel and where the Pharisees have asked him about divorce and he's answered that question and uh, elevating the children up uh, to in ministry saying that uh, the kingdom belongs to such as these. And then finally, uh, as he uh, discusses the outcome of that uh, question he had by the the rich young ruler, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, the first will be last and the last will be first. So we have that whole dynamic going on here. When we think about the first and the last, you know, in God's economy, it is not the rich, it is not the famous, it's not the smart, and it's not the well-connected who will inherit the kingdom of God. I think we would do well to remember that in our churches. Because way too often we, we gravitate toward those that are rich and famous and smart and well-connected. Not that, that they don't have something to say to us, but sometimes we ignore those uh, that uh, are not in those categories. It's the lowly. It's the dependent. It's the forsaken and the weak who inherit the kingdom of God. Bring the little children to me, those that are innocent, those that are dependent, those that have really nothing to bring to the table those are the ones that come into the kingdom. So this, this parable here, as we've been looking at all of Matthew's gospel, this parable here starts pulling some of these uh, concepts here together as we see uh, that we, we can understand the, the nature and the grace and the character of God uh, in this parable. And so I'm going to frame this around three questions, and these three questions aren't original to me. Uh, I actually heard a message uh, on this passage of Scripture several years ago now. Uh, Kevin DeYoung at one of the pastor's conferences that I went to asked these three questions. Uh, now I've taken these three and made them my own. Uh, but the, uh, the basic outline of these questions uh, are from, from his use of this, uh, this parable and how he addressed it. So three questions that uh, will be good for us to kind of wrap our minds around how to understand what Christ is trying to help his disciples understand and what he's trying to help us understand as well in this passage of Scripture. So the first question is this. Keep your Bibles open and follow along. Really, the, the parable itself is pretty straightforward. Uh, we don't have to deal with a lot. So I start really in verse 13. Uh, a landowner has some land. He needs some workers. So he goes out about six in the morning, hires some workers, goes out again at nine, at noon, at three, and then at five, uh, and hires workers to come in and work his uh, field for the day. That was a common practice back then. Uh, and the denarius was a common day's wage that uh, was agreed upon uh, for people to have. So all that's pretty straightforward uh, in, in the parable is in understanding that. So we, we pick this up in verse 13 in understanding what's going on here in this parable. 
Okay, the landowner has hired these different sets of workers. He's called them in and the day is ended now. The, the last workers only worked for about an hour. The day's ended and he says, let the last ones come in first to be paid and then I'll pay the others progressively going backwards from that. And so we pick this up in this parable and people have been paid and, and, and realized that the day, the guys that have been out there working all day long, they're hot, they're sweaty, they're tired from a full 12 hour day work day. And so now they've had to wait and they've watched these others getting paid. They're ready to get home, get some food, sit down, relax, all those things. So they're having to wait through all these kinds of things and they're seeing what everybody else is getting paid as they're, as they're watching here. And that's where the complaint comes in. That's where the heart of this parable comes in. And so the first question that we have here is the landowner saying in verse 13, he says, but he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? He takes him back to the beginning of the day. When he first called him, he said, listen, I'll pay you a day's wage, a denarius for your work today. That is what was agreed upon. And so at the end of the day, these workers, a representative of these first workers come up and said, this isn't fair. They're getting paid as much as we are. We should be getting more. Now, one of the things I noticed in this, uh, uh, reading through this, is that when the word friend comes up in Matthew's gospel, that's not a good thing. Uh, it's not a friend is in a positive sense. The, it's used four times in Matthew's gospel. The first time is the word philos, which means brotherly love. Uh, and that's kind of a positive thing, but actually it's a negative because it's the Pharisees saying that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they're using it in a negative way. You're a friend of all these deplorable people, these people we don't like. So they're using it as, as a negative uh, from their perspective. But then Jesus uses it three times, starting here in Matthew chapter 20. He uses it again in verse 22, chapter 22, and then again in Matthew chapter 26. And every time that word friend is used. It's the, uh, the, the Greek word uh, hetari, uh, which uh, basically means an associate, somebody who is uh, joined in with something, you know, some kind of an, an endeavor together. And so here he says friend, not really using it in a positive sense. Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, he uses it in verse 12, uh, the, the wedding feast. And uh, the man that comes in and he isn't prepared for the wedding properly. And he says, friend, how did you get in here without the right wedding garments? And then in chapter 26, uh, when Judas is betraying Jesus, Jesus addresses him as friend. Come and do what you're called to do. So, so the word friend in, in Matthew's gospel, it's an interesting thing to notice there that it's not used in, in a positive sense and that's just the way it was used in, in Matthew's gospel. So understand when he says friend to him, he's really drawing his attention to his shortcomings, to his failings here and what he's asking. So, but the first complaint here, that, that first question that is asked here uh, is, is God fair? Am I getting what I deserve. Now the basis of that question was others got more, got the same thing I received. So the basis of this question that that's being asked by this worker is based on his comparison to what others did around him. When I started reading that and studying that, I thought back, uh, probably it's about 30 years or so ago now, uh, in between my sophomore year and junior year of college, I went home and worked for a year at the Cleveland Clinic 
uh, Foundation, a ho huge hospital there in Cleveland. I was a patient transporter, so I just pushed people around all day, took them from one place to another. And so it gave me opportunities to talk with people. And I knew I was going back to college. I knew I was a, a religion major, so I was going into the ministry. And I had a conversation one day. Uh, I, I picked up real quickly on this guy that I was uh, taking somewhere. It was actually... Um, taking one of his relatives somewhere, but I picked him real quickly because he had this black cloth on and he had a, a white collar on and I said, you must be a priest. He said, yes, I am. So uh, we got to talking that day a little bit. We, we started talking about, I don't remember all the things that we talked about, but in that conversation, I remember asking him about their belief in purgatory. He was a Catholic priest. And I said, you know, where do you get, you know, your belief in purgatory? And again, I don't remember the entire conversation, but I remember this was his rationale for why there should be a purgatory. He said, it just is not fair for some people to get into heaven that haven't lived as good of a life as other people. That was his rationale. Now, I'm not saying that's the Roman Catholic stance or anything, but that, but that was his rationale that day. And that stood out to me for these 30 plus years now of that dialogue, of his rationale. It just isn't fair. If, if I've lived a good life, if I've been honorable and if I haven't, you know, if I don't drink, if I don't smoke and if I don't go with girls that do, then, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I, and, and why should somebody that does all those things, you know, sure they can get into heaven, but it's just not fair for them to get in as quickly as I get into heaven. And that was the rationale. So the question is in this, in this parable, is the landowner being fair? Well, in one sense, yes. Because if you'll notice in the parable, he agreed with the first workers at the onset of the day. He says, I will pay you a denarius for your day's work. And that's exactly what they got. They got exactly. He didn't shortchange them. He didn't say, I ran out of money. I'm sorry. I paid everybody else first. And I don't have enough for you. He didn't do that. He paid them what he what they, was agreed upon. And so in that sense, yes, he, he was being fair in keeping his agreement. But what it made, what made it seem unfair was his generosity is that some came in and only worked an hour. Some worked for about nine hours, some worked for about six hours, some worked three hours, but some came in and only worked an hour and they got the same exact pay that those that had worked all day long. And so it's not that the landowner shortchanged anybody. It was just simply he was being extremely generous with others. You know, that sometimes causes us some angst, doesn't it? Sometimes we get frustrated with that. I, I thought to Jesus on the cross, we just celebrated Easter last Sunday and of course thought about the, the crucifixion on, on Friday before that. And in, in the crucifixion story, we have the story of, it wasn't just Jesus there, but there was two criminals, one on either side of him. And initially they were both uh, chastising Jesus and, and calling, down, uh, calling him down, all those kinds of things. But then one finally got it, what was going on here. And so as he's hanging on the cross, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 23 tells us uh, that this other one of the two criminals looked at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, is that fair? This guy is hanging on the cross. He's about to take his last breath. He's, he's facing the punishment for a crime that he has been convicted of. He deserves to be up there on that cross dying uh, for whatever crime, whatever, whatever he'd stolen. He deserves to be up there. Is it fair that simply by saying, Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom, 
that, I, that he'll be there that day with him? That's not fair in our reckoning, especially for somebody that, you know, has lived for Jesus faithfully. What about the 12 disciples that are now going to have to live a lot longer and have to face all the difficulties? Was it fair for that condemned man to be given the promise of paradise with Christ? This is the point of the gospel. This is the heart of God's word to us. None of us deserves what we get. But God offers us so much more. That's the point of this parable here. That's the point of the gospel is that we don't deserve it. Those that, those that have worked an hour, do they deserve a day's wage? No, not in the sense of working, but in God's generosity, he was going to give it to him. So that's the first question is, is God fair? Am I getting what I deserve? Well, you better hope you don't get what you deserve. You better hope you get the generosity that God gives. The second question is this. Does God have the right to do as he pleases? Does God owe us more? Or if you want, put it into your situation. Does God owe you more? You know, when circumstances seem wrong, we question God's authority and our situation. We say, God, this isn't right. You know, why, why do we have to deal with all this COVID-19 stuff? What have I done wrong? Why do I have to be locked away in my house? Why can't we have a full church with people here sitting here worshiping today? What, this isn't fair. This is, you know, we, we question things like that. We, we ask those kinds of questions. And that, that's a normal thing. That's a natural thing to do. I thought about the prophets as they were dealing with Habakkuk especially as the, the northern ten tribes have already fallen and now uh, a, ser a series com coming in and Babylon's about to take over uh, the northern two tribes, Judah. Habakkuk is prophesying and he's the questioning prophet. And I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but he asked a couple questions that go to the heart of what we're looking at here this morning. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, Habakkuk says to the Lord, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry out for help and you will not hear? or cry violence and you will not save. Habakkuk saying, this isn't right. Why are all these Babylonians coming in and, and attacking us? You know, God, how long are you gonna put up with that? And then he goes into verse 13 and he says, why do you oddly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? Uh, the Babylonians were a lot more wicked than anything those that they had done in Judah. And so here Habakkuk is comparing. He's saying, we're better than they are. Why are, you, why are they coming in? They, we don't deserve this. They deserve this. Uh, those same questions that we have, the same questions that are at the heart of this parable here. Jeremiah, same kind of time frame, uh, asked a similar question. Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, he says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all those who are treacherous thrive. It just doesn't seem right. God, this isn't fair. This isn't right. Elijah, after his great victory on Mount Carmel, after defeating all the prophets of Baal and uh, rising up for God and standing strong, Jezebel gets angry with him. Uh, and so he runs off into the wilderness. And in chapter 19, verse 10, this is what I, um, Elijah had to say. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, this is where he kind of has that pity party. I, even I am the only one left and they seek my life to take it away. God, this isn't fair. I've just won this great victory for you. I've done this great thing for you, and now my life's being threatened. This isn't the way it's supposed to work. 
God do something about this? Does God have the right to do as he pleases? Does he have the right to order things the way he orders things? That's the question that's asked here in Matthew's gospel. The landowner asked to the worker that comes up to him. Chapter 20, verse 15, he says, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? It's mine. Can't I do with it as I please? I remember when we moved here, Susan and I bought our first house. And so when we were doing taxes uh, in 2008, uh, they were offering first-time home buyers uh, this credit, uh, you know, a free loan that you could get and you could pay it back uh, over the course of 15 years. And so it was a pretty good deal. There were some things that we wanted to get done around the house. And so uh, we, we took, took up the, uh, the offer for that loan and we, we, we did that. Well, the following year, as they often do, uh, they rewrote the, uh, all the laws and uh, all the things. And in 2009, they offered first-time homebuyers, um, I can't remember what the amount was, but uh, a free uh, credit given with no payback required. Now, is that fair? We bought our house in November, and two months later, if we'd bought it January the 1st, we would've gotten free money. We wouldn't be having to pay it back. Is that fair? Well, that's just the way they decide to do it. The government can, again, I realize no illustration is perfect. The government's money is really our money going to them. But, you know, they can choose what they want to do. They made the law. They, they voted on it, and they were allowed to do what they wanted to do. We missed the money by two months. Believe me, I think about that every year I have to pay that money back. I think just two months later. But, you know, it, but it's, it wasn't my money in the first place. So is it fair? The question really comes when we look at this passage of scripture is who are we? Who are we? Those who are totally dependent on God to tell him what he is to do with what is his. Who am I to tell God how he's supposed to operate and how he is supposed to work? Now, now can I ask God? Yes. And that's throughout scripture. We pray to God and we ask God and, and God will, will, will work with us and, and, and will many times do things for us. It's not wrong to ask God. It's not wrong to even question God. God, why is this happening? It wasn't wrong for the prophets to, to question God. It wasn't wrong when you read a lot of the Psalms when they uh, cry out to God, God, why is this happening? That's not wrong to do those things. Can we do those things? Yes. Here's the point though, is that we cannot accuse God. We can't say to God, this isn't right or you're not doing it the right way just because it doesn't agree with what I want. And that's the point of this parable here. God can choose if he so desires to save a nasty, rebellious slave trader like John Newton. That's his prerogative. And what amazing grace that is. God owes us nothing but he offers us everything. That's at the heart of this parable here. We get ourselves into trouble when we start thinking that he somehow owes us something. That was the first worker's problem here, uh, is they said, you, you owe us more. It's, it, it's again, the first workers didn't deserve the work any more than the last workers. They just happened to be first in line. They just happened to be there 
six in the morning to get hired. We don't know why the others uh, weren't seen at first. Maybe the owner thought he had enough. We don't know. We're not given those details. But they, they didn't deserve the work any more than the ones that showed up at nine o'clock, 12 o'clock, three o'clock, or five o'clock. But they started thinking, God, you owe me more because I've been working harder. But when we think about it, God offers us everything. Every single one of those workers was dependent on that landowner to give them that money. They didn't have it in their pocket showing up that day. It was in his pocket. And so they were dependent upon him to provide them with what they needed. The same is true for us. This parable puts in perspective how we approach God. Do we approach God saying, God, listen, I'm a worthy worker. Look at all the things that I've done for you. Now, because of all these things that I've done for you, here's what you should do for me. That's how these workers were showing up that day in the parable. We worked all day for you in the hot sun, 12 hours. You owe us more. Do we approach God in that way sometimes? I go to church, I pay my tithe, I'm nice to people, you know, I, I don't do the things I'm not supposed to do, I do the things I'm supposed to do. Do we approach God in that way of, I'm a worthy worker? Or do we approach him as a humble servant? God, I don't deserve anything. Thank you for what you give me, because you give me everything. So this last question that we come to now really becomes the most pointed and challenging of this whole parable. Does God's generosity make you jealous? Listen to what Jesus, what, what Jesus says in this parable here. Again, the second half of verse 15. The landowner says to the worker that showed up, he says, or do you begrudge my generosity? Wow, that cuts to the core, doesn't it? We don't know how the worker went away. I hope he went away with his head down and saying, I'm sorry. We don't, we don't know how he went away, but God's word cuts to the heart. Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 and 13 tells us this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit and of joints and of marrow and the discerning the thoughts of the, and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Do you begrudge the generosity of God? And does God's generosity make you jealous? When we start comparing ourselves in relationship to others, we're missing the point. It's like the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, the, they both go into the temple there in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 18. They both go into the temple and the Pharisee stands up and he says, God, aren't you lucky I'm here today? I do all the right things. And so he stands up kind of loud and proud and says, you know, look at me and God, you sure are lucky I'm here today. And he even looks and he says, aren't you glad I'm not like this dirty, rotten tax collector over here? I'm a good guy. Tax collector can only come in and bow his head and say, God, forgive me, have mercy on me. When we start comparing 
ourselves with others in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Or when we start picking and choosing who deserves to have Jesus Christ in their lives. We look at somebody and say, they're just not worthy. They've just done too much. God couldn't forgive them. God shouldn't forgive them. I'm gonna work in other areas and, and not work with these. We tend to, we, we can do that as well and, and we can be guilty of the sin of not trusting in God's generosity. When we do those things, when we start comparing ourselves, our relationship with others, when we start selecting who's worthy and who's not worthy, we reveal our understanding of our own dependence on God. Why would we think it is unfair for God to save anyone? From the worst of the worst to the most vile sinner you could ever imagine. Paul understood that. Paul said, I'm not worthy to be here. I'm one abnormally born. I, I don't deserve this. I was fighting against God and I was fighting against Christ. I don't deserve this. Paul got it. He understood it. John Newton got it. He understood it. Why would we think it is unfair for God to save anybody, no matter what they've done to you or anybody else? Why would we think we need a purgatory to even out the accounts of everybody? Does God's generosity make you jealous? Is it not his to do with as he pleases in the way that he pleases? It's the heart of this parable. The heart of this parable is, is the gospel and how we share the gospel, how we live the gospel in our own daily lives, how we view God and how we view others. So this parable helps teach us much about our view of salvation. Am I saved because somehow there's some goodness in me? I've worked all day. I was there at five o'clock and by the time six o'clock came around, I was at work in the field and I worked hard all day long. And so now God owes me not just what he said, but even more because of how good I am and how hard I've worked. Do we view ourselves as a worthy worker, someone deserving somehow this salvation that comes through Christ's sacrifice? Or are you dependent, humble, and grateful? Are you somebody today that is just as desperately in need of salvation as you were the day you received it? Or are you today somebody that has not received that salvation and are de desperate for that salvation? Not that we question our salvation, not that we wonder if we're saved or not. When we are saved, when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we put our hope and our trust in him and, and we believe in him, he promises us that we are in his hand and nothing can remove us from that hand. But each and every day, even if you've been saved for 80 years or eight months or eight days, you should still be desperate for that salvation, realizing the generosity, the grace that God gives to you. And you know what? If somebody lives a hard if it's the thief on the cross and his last breath is Jesus, remember me when you enter into paradise and, and Jesus chooses to save him, praise be to God. He is saved that day just as much as anybody is saved. This parable is about the fact that God isn't fair and that's good. Because if God was fair, none of us would be saved. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. I can't 
balance the scales and I can't get the scales to somehow tip in the, in, in the way of being better than, than not good. I, I can't do that. And even if I could, it still wouldn't matter because I'd still have all those bad in my life. It's God's generosity. And I can't begrudge that in my life and I can't begrudge that in anybody else's life. I can just say, praise God. Thank you, God, that you saved a sinner like me. What amazing grace that is. Let's pray. Father, I come before you right now and I thank you for this parable and what it teaches us about who you are and about who we can be and who we should be in you. Help us, Father, to live in the generosity and the grace that you give. Help us to trust in you as Lord and Savior today, to believe in you, to faithfully follow you, and Lord, to help others to do the same, to realize your love and your grace, and to faithfully serve you this day. It's in Christ's most holy name that we pray. Amen.